Okay, live from the studios of the Center for the Governance of AI at the Future of Humanity Institute, I am very honored to have Dr. Eric Drexler as my second guest on the China AI podcast. He's a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute, has three degrees from MIT, widely known as the founding father of nanotechnology, and he's also the reason why I like to hold all of my meetings in the office in the lunchroom because he jumps in and adds a lot of interesting content. And usually, people are more interested in discussing things with him, and then I get to rest and take a break and、uh, drink soda and eat crackers. So again, the structure of the podcast: each time we go into it is going to be a briefing briefing checklist where we go through the summary, high level points of a specific report or text that we're talking about that day. Second section is debate the guest. Third is footnote fever, and fourth is trust the process.、Uh, this time, I want to devote more onto the BCL section because I think the concepts that Eric brings up in this paper, called "Reframing Superintelligence," which is a FHI technical report that was published earlier this year, I think a lot of the points and concepts that he brings in are simplistic and intuitive, but also require some degree of explanation and. There's a lot of abstract concepts, so let's just dive in.、Um, in the paper, you make a distinction between the classic artificial general intelligence model and what you call comprehensive AI services. So, can we start by first explaining what is the classic AGI model? Well, the, the classic AGI model、uh, frames intelligence as being about unitary mind-like systems. Uh, systems that have some general learning ability, some general competence,、uh, goals in the world,、uh, systems that endure over time and learn and change themselves.、Uh, whereas the service model、uh, looks toward intelligence as a collection of competencies that are the result of research and development, and that in aggregate are general,、uh, but without there being a mind-like system、uh, sitting there in the middle. Pursuing its goals, and I think we can tie this to Nick Bostrom's work, the center direct, director that where we both work under. And in his super intelligence book, he says as a starting point definition of super intelligence, any intellect that greatly exceeds the cognitive performance of humans in virtually all domains of interest. He takes that further back in chapter three to. Articulate three forms of superintelligence: what he calls speed intelligence, collective and superintelligence, and quality superintelligence. And I think the second is where your book and his interact the most.、Uh, I think there are strong connections, but I would like to start by disagreeing with the definition of intelligence. Okay.、Uh, I would argue that the definition that people have been using conflates two quite distinct meanings of the term. We refer to a child as intelligent not because the child has any any competence in the world, any impressive competence, but because the child can learn. We we refer to an expert as intelligent not because the expert can learn something next year, but because the expert performs at a very high level,、uh, perhaps solving very difficult problems. And an expert could, in principle, be unable to learn and still be intelligent. A child could, in principle, know nothing and still be intelligent. So these are are quite different. And in AI systems, we find a clean separation、uh, between learn- systems with learning capacity and systems that have been trained and have a lot of knowledge. And I think that's very important to understanding what intelligent systems can be like and how we can understand and manage them better. 
And in the paper Reframing Superintelligence, you tie this back to uh, Good's definition in 1966, where he defines ultra-intelligence in terms of a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Yes, which sets, I think, a very high and unnecessary bar. So you're saying that Good's definition is actually in line with these mistaken mm -hmm. definitions of intelligence. Yes. Okay, great. We'll, we'll dig into that further as we go into another key concept, comprehensive AI services, which you define as flexible general intelligence in which agents are a class of service providing products rather than a natural or necessary engine of progress in themselves. And my quick explanation of this would be it's basically an app store model of super intelligent apps where there's a super intelligent translation app that would be able to pick up complicated multilingual idioms with ease beyond what even a native speaker of both languages would be able to do but ultimately it would just be an app that performs a translation service and there will be an ecosystem of these super intelligent apps and services book writing apps advising governments on optimal policy uh, just think of what new wonders a super intelligent meme making app could bring to the world. But crucially, what you're trying to point out is that these apps are limited to their specific task or service. You wouldn't ask a super intelligent Google Translate app to play Candy Crush, just like you wouldn't ask a super intelligent government advising app to then go translate things. Yeah, uh, I think the app store model is pretty good, uh, or you can think in terms of cloud services an array of cloud services that are available for a range of different purposes. Uh, just looking at the government advice and, and translation, uh, yeah, you wouldn't ask the, the government advisor to translate, but the government advisor would almost certainly be asking for briefings from systems that in turn are, are using translation to gather information. So you, you should think of the, the apps typically, or maybe most often, being used by other apps. So think of systems of, uh, that are uh, drawing on, managing, delegating to systems with other competencies in a, in a network. And I think so, maybe one way to run through a nice example of this is, I think a lot of this was inspired by you just reading a bunch of technical papers in this space. And a lot of this was also inspired through the lens of language translation as one service that I think we're getting relatively close to in terms of super intelligent level language translation services. So do you have anything you want to say on that point particularly? Well, if you're looking at background of ideas, uh, a lot of it goes from a very early time in my interest in AI, which I guess stems from the 70s, uh, was uh, a lot of attention in the 1990s. Uh, but my understanding of it today is very much shaped by the structure of society, which is based on division of knowledge and division of labor, uh, by the way in which systems tend to be templated on existing systems. Uh, we find systems that are slotting into existing roles in our, our, our economy and task structure, and by the fact that those task structures in some sense uh, reflect something natural about the world. The ability to play Go is not naturally the same kind of ability as, uh, as seeing a street sign and, and helping to drive a car. So those different perspectives all fit together. And when you talk about translation, uh, that certainly had a strong influence on my understanding of the interaction of generality and, uh, and specificity of a task. Ideally, a machine translation system would know everything about the world, 
but it would still be uh, what a mathematician would call a function of type string to string. And on page 17, you write, language translation exemplifies a service that could incorporate broad, super-intelligent level world knowledge while avoiding classic AI safety challenges, both in development and in application. So I want to unpack this concept of AI safety challenges that you lay out in the piece. How would you define AI safety challenges for the listener? Well, the central AI safety challenge that people have been focusing on involves uh, systems that are pursuing goals in the world, where those goals can be misaligned uh, with what we want. Uh, the pursuit of the goals could have unintended side effects, uh, and where those side effects could be potentially on a catastrophic scale. Systems have, have uh, objectives that are unbounded in making money or in becoming more intelligent and could, the, the classic picture is, uh, you tell a system, give it the unbounded goal of making paper clips and it converts the world into paper clips. Or Marvin Minsky's example, you ask a machine to play a perfect game of chess and it converts the universe into chess playing machines. That was a, an older uh, example of the same point. And he was your advisor and at he was, MIT. He was my advisor at MIT. Uh, and wrote a book called The Society of Mind, which is also a source of, of perspectives that see in intelligence as a composite of uh, the smaller, smaller, more specialized parts. And I should emphasize that those classic concerns can emerge from systems that are not designed to act as, as general agents. You can have an aggregate of services, uh, which is deliberately given uh, some goal, like maximizing money in somebody's bank account, or which has, as a result of, uh, I don't know, evolutionary pressures, mm -hmm. uh, is, is being used in a way that leads to the system uh, being used more because what it does is something people find to be addictive. Okay. And, and, and so on. So that ties into this notion of Yes, there are some of these classic AGI safety risks under your CAIS, Comprehensive AI Services model. But partly, your argument is saying that while these conventional, traditional notions of AGI risks are important, we should also be thinking about the, CI, the, the CAIS model or how it's embedded within the CAIS, CAIS model. We got to figure out a better acronym for that. <laughs> well, people have been pronouncing it CASE or CASE. Case. I, I usually just refer to the AI services model. AI services model. I like that. Yeah, a ASM. Brief, and, brief yeah. and clear and not a, not a string of letters. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the really robust point is that we can see the pattern in which AI is emerging today, and it is a pattern of research and development, constructing right. systems that pursue bounded goals in bounded time with bounded resources, because people have bounded resources and they want results and, and so on. And we can see how that leads, particularly through the increasing AI-enabled automation of AI service development, to what looks like the, the picture of recursive improvement, AI systems improving AI capabilities at AI speed, but in a very different way from the, the classic picture. It's one that's more understandable, it's continuous with what we already see, it's not a, a, an artificial brain-like thing in a box, it is incremental acceleration and automation of the kinds of tasks we already see being performed. Right. And that says that problems arise in a different context, and if someone wants to talk about the classic model, they either need to explain 
how it fits into this kind of system. Right. We'll explain how we end up somewhere else starting from where we are. Yeah, I think and you put it very practically. What, what matters are the concrete AI services provided, their scope, quality, and reliability, and the ease or difficulty of acquiring them in terms of time, cost, and human effort. And this is on page 74, this idea that the key drivers are going to be industrial, economic, competitive, that people want to make super intelligent services that provide a specific goal or an end. And you also argue that strongly self-modifying agents will lose their instrumental value even as their implementation becomes more accessible. So I want to go on to specifically how do you think, now that we've outlined the KAIS model, the ASM model, how does that shift the landscape of safety concerns? And we've talked about the classic AGI risks, the emergent behaviors of unexpected kinds. So you think, first of all, that classic AGI safety problems are still important, but that the KAIS model may reframe those or also provide solutions to those. And second, you think the KAIS model also prevents, presents its own range of challenges. So let's dive in the first one. How do you think the KAIS model interacts with classic AGI safety problems? Well, the really, really classic picture says that on, you know, one fine day, there is a breakthrough, and all of a sudden, you have the ability to have machines that learn anything. Somehow they learn very quickly, and now you have the human race uh, standing there with human abilities confronted with a super intelligent agent, and then, you know, what do we do? Uh, the, the AI services model says that we're already seeing the development of services that something like recursive improvement to the level that people were imagining is something that is happening incrementally, it's happening as part of AI R&D, that on a path to the technologies that would let you have the classic artificial general intelligence in a box, you're developing capabilities for general learning and you're developing new competencies and you'd expect uh, you know, people at institutions to be pouncing on those capabilities and using them to build services. So why would you ever expect to see more capability inside one agent than you see in aggregate in all of the services that people have developed using billions of dollars and immense amounts of compute in the rest of the world? So it, it reframes the problems in that they are likely to arise from systems that are qualitatively different in their structure and origin, hmm. and that collectively provide a different context for events to unfold in, in, in general. Right. So let's make this more specific. In pages 132 to 133, you lay out why undertaking AI-driven biomedical research, for example. It doesn't need to risk problems based on criminality, kidnapping, for example, or catastrophic problems of value alignment. And the idea of value alignment goes back to this goal specification thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, with respect to paper clips. So can you just walk us through that specific example? Well, a, a background consideration is that I think the classic uh, threat models have assumed that you have AI systems that don't have common sense. They don't have a, a broad understanding of what people care about. But already, people are working very hard to apply AI to making predictive models of human concerns, in part because you want to persuade them or sell things to them. And if we develop models that are good at predicting what people will, of course, want and approve of, so you don't have to ask them, 
what they will, of course, disapprove of, so that you don't do that, and what they care about, but it's not clear, so perhaps you should consult with people or, or be, you know, be cautious about doing those sorts of things. If we have those sorts of models, then systems that are built to serve human purposes can have this background knowledge uh, shape actions. So you know, there, there are pictures of, well, you have, a, have systems that are working on curing cancer, and to pursue that goal, they kidnap people and do, do horrific experiments on them. Well, let's see. Uh, kidnapping is against the law, and people don't like kidnapping and kidnappers. Right. Uh, another other scenarios involve theft of resources. Well, theft is against the law. People don't like having things stolen from. This, this is all pretty elementary stuff. Yep. Most of the nightmare scenarios involve that kind of violation of obvious uh, human preferences. So instead of imagining someone building a system that's very smart and doesn't have common sense and you tell it, go cure cancer and you step back and watch, which seems to be what people have in mind, uh, instead, we should think of improving uh, medical research in ways that are templated on the task structure that we see today. So you'd have you know, better instruments uh, for you know, microscopy and molecular right. biology, uh, better experiments, planned better, executed quickly and effectively, uh, better, better data analysis and modeling, faster drug discovery, you know, really good robotic surgery. Uh, but also, and this is in line with the, the picture of systems that have good predictive models of, of human concerns, uh, systems that help with ethical review, uh, auditing, uh, program management, and, and so on. Right. And the other, the other aspect on this first point, beyond some of these common sense notions that you've brought up, is you argue that access to superintelligent level services could potentially mitigate some of the classic AGI safety problems. So the idea that we might be able to address some of these classic AGI concerns with superintelligent level tools of our own. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to get into the second point, which is you do say that these perspective capabilities, the KAIS model, the ASM model, in turn do engender novel risks and opportunities of their own. What would be some of those new risks and opportunities? Um, well, the risks involve amplifying people's ability to pursue goals, and that includes bad actors, uh, that includes people who are you know, seeking to optimize clicks in a social media system and they end up destabilizing uh, concepts of truth and democracy. Uh, people or systems that are in some optimization process that are trying to get people's attention and you end up making systems that are addictive and people at one level, this is a particularly bad one, at one level they want the service that they're being addicted to, at another level they very much don't want to be behaving the way they find themselves behaving. Classic, mm -hmm. you know, addiction dilemma. Right. And, you know, the the big one again is is uh, looking at unbounded goals that can be given to systems like maximizing the amount of money in somebody's bank account. Right. And if you give the system read-write access to the internet and access to existing AI services, yeah. uh, language understanding and expression services, data analytic services, a relatively simple system, something that isn't, doesn't have broad world knowledge, could draw on this pool of uh, you know, cloud-available services to pursue an optimization task like that, and I think you could have horrific consequences. 
uh, countering all of that, if one has uh, better tools for better systems for monitoring what is going on in the world, uh, for planning, helping you to, to plan responses to various contingencies, helping to implement actions, uh, then you are using AI resources to help control and manage some of the problems uh, raised by other AI systems. And I don't know of any uh, complex system in the world, uh, certainly nothing that involves human beings or, or living organisms, that doesn't have some functionality that looks like policing, right. uh, some monitoring of events, and some way of responding to potential harms. So that ties in really nicely to our first rebuttal on the Debate the Gus section, which is from a Slate Star Codex review of your work, where the Slate Star Codex person cites similar concerns that you just raised um, and cites them from OpenAI researcher Paul Cristiano, who worries that AI services will be naturally better at satisfying objective criteria, such as give me as much money in my bank account, as you just mentioned, um, versus something that is like provide real value to the users of the site instead of just clickbait. And that is much harder to define in sort of these rules that you have mentioned as well. And the Slate Star Codex person formulates this as it, it takes a good guy with an AI to stop a bad guy with an AI. As in, do we really believe that by the time these rogue AI services or rogue AI agents eventually appear, what is your argument for the fact that we will have a robust ecosystem of AI services by then to be able to be the good guys to stop these bad guys with super intelligent AIs. I'm not at all sure that we will. Okay. So you you basically take this concern as one of the yes. uh, one, one of the core just, concerns. Just in general, if you hear Paul Cristiano uh, expressing a concern, I probably share it and often uh, wish that I was able to express it as well as he does. Fair enough. I think that leads into. Um, a further rebuttal, which is this distinction between super intelligent services and super intelligent agents, and how fuzzy, how clean is that distinction? And basically, the point here is can you really get a super intelligent service without it becoming an agent? And this comes from this internet person named Gorn, G W E R N. I don't really know Gorn's background, but his bio says that. Uh, Gorin's bio says that they are a Wikipedia editor and do a lot of um, reading and writing in this space. And Gorin has a post called Tool AIs Want to be Agent AIs. So in the language of your article, Gorin's critique would be service AIs want to be agent AIs and that we can't really distinguish between the two. Uh, his article, if I'm recalling properly, uh, came out fairly early in the process of my writing about this subject, okay. uh, so they don't directly, doesn't directly engage with, with, with what I have to say. Okay. My overall reaction there is, well, first, that the, to go back to a question you were asking earlier, yeah. uh, that the boundary between agents and non-agents is, is fuzzy. Uh, people ask each other, what do we mean by an agent? And everyone says, we don't know. And they speak of systems being agent-y. Right. Uh, so it's it's well known to be one of these day and night things where there's also dawn and dusk, you know, very important and clear distinction in one sense, but but fuzzy at the boundaries. Uh, but regarding, you know, so tools wanting to be agents, 
well, some services are agent services. Right. You know, a travel agent makes, you know, talks with you and makes bookings. And I'd like a super intelligent travel agent that uh, can inter interface very effectively with all of the knowledge in the world about transportation and accommodations and what people like and don't like and what I like and don't like right. because it's a personal assistant that's working with that. Uh, for another example, self-driving cars, you know, autonomous vehicles are agents. They're out there acting in the world, uh, pursuing goals, uh, actually putting human lives at risk, a very, very serious kind of agent. But these goals are bounded in, in, uh, in resources and time and scope. And that, that, I think, puts them squarely in the area of services. Okay. But a broader reaction that I had in reading Warren's piece is, I guess it's a reaction that I have in, in a number of contexts, is that I find it difficult to address points being made within the framework that people are raising Okay. The, the concerns in. And when I say reframing superintelligence, it's about a different framing. Right. And it's very hard to discuss a framing or the contents of a reframing within a different frame. So instead, I, I say, hey, uh, we're watching an AI unfold today. This is the pattern we see. Here are extrapolations. Here are some of the implications. Reframe opportunities and risks. Now, tell me about your concerns within this, this framework or tell me why it's the wrong framework. Right. I think Gorn's reframing would be your pathway of getting to this app store of services is one model, mm -hmm. but it might be more efficient and economically valuable for people to skip right to agent AIs or more classic super intelligent AIs than to go for the tool AIs. Um, well, uh, again, my observation there would be that every step that you make that would enable you to do that is also giving you better trainable models, training methods, uh, uh, background knowledge that can be used to provide bounded services, and that one could have AGI-level agents right. uh, with, with extensive generality. Right. And, you know, Nick Bostrom speaks of the orthogonality thesis, that uh, more or less any level of intelligence can be applied to more or less any goal. Right. And that includes goals that are, you know, are bounded. Yeah. And those bounded goals do not raise the classic uh, convergent instrumental goal problem that right. he discusses a few pages later. Maybe what's happening here is a lot of times when we're talking within the conventional framework of making a distinction between tool AIs and agent AIs, we're just talking about different type of services under your model. Some services will have more of an agent feature, like a travel agent. Mm -hmm. Booking services, some will have more of a tool feature, but they're all within services. And when you're talking about agent AIs, you are talking about a super intelligent across many different domains agent that is acting on its own, actively learning on its own, not necessarily bounded by as many rules. Hmm. Well, uh, just this reminds me of a of a common pattern in conversations that I have with people. They'll say, "Well, how do how does a service services system? Uh, how how you know? I would like a system that does so and so." And I'll say, "Well, that sounds like a service to me." Or they'll say, um, but I want a system that does such and such, and therefore I want artificial general intelligence, AGI. Mm. And so the I will always turn this into kind of a joking response, which is, what part of comprehensive do you not understand? <laughs> um, so 
one, I find that one can consistently reframe pretty much any goal that someone articulates yeah. in terms of services, uh, right. some of which are services that, if implemented, are, are very dangerous. Right. And that's a concern. Yeah. Like, you're giving them everything they want, but they still seem to want more. And, yeah. And the wrong thing. And the wrong thing. <laughs> okay. Lastly, on this rebuttal section... And you did the translation, yes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lastly, on this rebuttal section... There's this isn't really a rebuttal, but it's to engage with someone else's work on a topic uh, for China AI newsletter. I did translation of Zhao Tingyang's piece called Near Term Worries and Long Term Concerns of the Artificial Intelligence Revolution, where he does discuss long term concerns from superintelligence. And he is one of the top Chinese contemporary philosophers. And in this piece, he argues that we need an all-under-heaven or tianxia system that can control the world's technological risks, including from superintelligence. Uh, no, you've read the piece. What were your thoughts on Zhao's framing of superintelligence? What does he get right? What does he get wrong? Yeah, I'm very glad that you translated it. I read it a number of months ago and followed up by uh, looking up some other translations of, of, of pieces that, that he's written. And I very much like uh, some of his thinking about political philosophy, international relations. It's a very uh, pluralistic, goal alignment oriented uh, framing of concerns. With respect to AI, uh, I was impressed by the fact that he engaged in what I think is the, you know, the right range of concerns uh, in, in quite a good way. It's a somewhat different perspective than you know, the perspectives that have been circulating in the, the Western community but generally quite aligned. My main criticism would be that he takes for granted a model in which it's natural to think of AI systems as being unitary and, broadly speaking, mind-like and directing, directing the behavior of an entity in the world that is, in some essential sense, anthropomorphic. Um, so my view is that such systems are possible. Mm. Uh, their possibility is very important. Uh, but that the again the the way to frame problems is somewhat different. I would be very interested in in how is how he would respond to to that body of ideas. Yeah, no, I think like increasingly the one sentence summary of this of uh, your reframing superintelligence is we have thought of superintelligence as human like when in fact it's going to be tool like. Yes, uh, I would also I would say that intelligence is not a thing. Yeah. Intelligence is not the same thing as mind. Minds can have intelligence, but intelligence is about capacities uh, for mapping between situations and problems and actions and outcomes. And that process does not have to resemble anything like the intelligent systems that we have in the world today. So That's great. Let's, let's jump into the footnote fever section. And I think it's important to note that a lot of this work is rooted in, draws from many others who have thought and written about this, Robin Hansen, Katja Grace, Stuart Armstrong, uh, Leeser, in various forums, uh, Gorn, we already mentioned, Rohan Shah, who does the excellent AI alignment newsletter, has also done a great summary of this piece. So in this section, we're, talk we're trying to connect this to other pieces of literature, but also look at some of the specific details of the piece. And I think one very interesting section is section 20, talking about collusion among super intelligent oracles can readily be avoided. 
And do you just want to give the backstory of this particular section? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a concern that if you have a high-level intelligent system, and as one might expect, you don't understand it, you maybe don't under, understand its goals, uh, how can you get answers from it that are trustworthy, especially answers to questions like, how do we control superintelligent systems? And back around 1990, I was talking with, with Marvin Minsky about these things back when he was, was, was my advisor and outlined uh, an approach which essentially said that you can have systems that are diverse, uh, they have different knowledge, they are in different situations, they have different incentives. Uh, some don't know that others exist, uh, some do. Uh, some are trained to know a lot about engineering, uh, others other and, and know nothing about, say, language and people. You can have a diversity of systems. Right. And some of the systems, as in a generative adversarial network, uh, are, are working to, to criticize other systems. It's what they do. Under those circumstances, you don't have collaboration or collusion any more than you do between the generative model and the you know, side and the, the, the discriminator, discriminator in a GAN, and can have uh, you know, checks and balances and get reliable answers out of collections of individually untrustworthy systems. So I outlined that to Marvin. He said you should write it up. I procrastinated uh, from 1990 until, until about 2015 or so. Um, but that the section that you just mentioned unfolds those ideas in some detail and looks at questions of under what circumstances do you tend to get collusive cooperation, uh, what are the complementary uh, aspects of situations and you know games that tend to discourage it or, or make it effectively impossible, and then I go through those points and ask what is natural or easy to do in an engineering context, and you conclude that what people want will typically uh, result in being able to get second opinions, having systems compete with one another, uh, having proposers and critics, uh, right. all of which makes the picture of all AI systems being the same thing and colluding, which used to be uh, argued, uh, look, look, uh, let us say, uh, highly unrealistic. Right. Right. So the lesson to all you youngins out there is just keep procrastinating. 25 years <laughs> later, you might incorporate it into a section of a path-breaking work. So I want to also, I, my favorite question each time is, what is your favorite footnote? So could either mention a cool reference to someone else's work you want to emphasize, or a footnote, a particular section of this mammoth 200-plus page text uh, that you just didn't get have as much space to talk about, and this is your opportunity to talk about it. Well, I, I should mention that, that this document is very light on footnotes and crediting other people and I would have taken a lot longer to write if I had attempted to do a good job of that. Uh, so up front, I apologize for that. Uh, note that most of the ideas, you know, seem like common sense to people. A friend of mine refers to the second kind of obvious, obvious once pointed out, and that's the reaction I've been getting, you know, around FHI, OpenAI, DeepMind. Yeah. People say, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You know, why weren't we thinking in this framework before? Right. Uh, which I is very much the, the response that I... I, I was looking for, and it is very gratifying. So I tell people, uh, if you think an idea is obvious, just use it. Uh, if you think an idea really should be credited to someone else, do that. Uh, I'm interested in having ideas circulate and not particularly yeah. interested in, in having some particular thing called out as original. So that's my excuse for not having very many footnotes, except ones about the, the state of the art. 
uh, where that supports uh, or illustrates some, some aspect of, of the argument. Uh, there's a tangent that I almost included. Uh, part of the, of the report talks about, uh, you know, in, in deep learning we have vector space embeddings and notions of vectors that are close to one another represent similarity. Uh, co-embedding different kinds of objects in the same space to look at similarity relationships and connections. So I discuss uh, embedding spaces for tasks and services as a way of finding appropriate services given a task. Uh, what I almost discussed was how that idea transfers into uh, question answering systems based on large corpora where you have embeddings of mm. questions, embeddings of information, which can be gathered from the entire internet. Imagine taking pieces of, of discussion and knowledge, digesting them partly, right. uh, having embeddings of those, and being able to use some of the very fast near-neighbor algorithms that people have, have developed mm -hmm. to, in effect, make all of that knowledge available for immediate recall, right. semantically, much like human long-term memory. Yeah. Uh, for systems that are formulating questions. Mm. That's very much a superhuman level capability. Right. We can more or less see how to do it. It looks like an extension of, of current research mm -hmm. and I think gives some sense of how one could have uh, mundane tools lead to really, really striking uh, capabilities. Yeah, that would be a cool one to take to a pub and just bat around some ideas around mm. with. I, yeah, I, I really like this idea of just making these ideas that are the second kind of obvious, just free-flowing. I mean, I think President Harry S. Truman once said, you can do so much good in the world if you don't care about who gets the credit. So I, I like that idea of just allowing anybody to use these relatively obvious, but, but the second kind of obvious type of ideas. So I want to move on to the last section, which is trust the process. Um, and I want to start at the top with actually a question that I didn't really send you um, beforehand, which is I've been thinking about because the audience, at least for the first podcast, um, was some folks in the technical AI space, a lot of folks in policymaking space, people more who are thinking about near-term risks from AI. And I do think the near-term, long-term distinction is a little bit muddied, and a lot of the problems that we're dealing with now will have long-term implications. But I guess if you were to summarize, what would be your takeaway from this technical report for a near-term policymaker thinking about a policymaker thinking about near-term AI risks? Um, I would encourage them to assume that we will see relatively rapid progress, uh, in which the patterns that we see as problems and opportunities in the near term will become accentuated, they'll generalize, uh, that we'll find that AI services are increasingly high level and continue to be very inexpensive. Hmm. Uh, one of the arguments that's made in the, in the report is that uh, brain level computational capacity is already apparently quite inexpensive, hmm. as best one can compare you know, AI tasks to human cognitive tasks. The series of those comparisons all point in that direction. Okay. Um, so assume that we move toward very serious large-scale capabilities, uh, perhaps on a shorter timeline than people have assumed, okay. and uh, don't sit there waiting for some immense breakthrough to some, some alien kind of technology. Right. Uh, we're relatively unlikely to see that, and if we do, it will be in a context that is perhaps dominated by these uh, more mundane systems. 
And I like this idea particularly of addiction being a problem about how it will supercharge a lot of the risks that we already have yes. and addiction being one of those things that if you supercharge can really spiral out of control in a lot of neg negative feedback loops. So, um, yeah, in this section I like to kind of almost treat you as if you were a movie director and look through what are the things that influence you because oftentimes we think of researchers as um, service AIs where you plug in stuff and stuff comes out but actually you know researchers are also like movie directors they have influences that they put into their stories into their work and one thing I want to get into is I really view this piece as basically viewing super intelligence through a technology as a systems framework as very much like a systems engineer comes at this problem of super intelligence and outlines their view on it uh, and i don't know how what you want to share about your background with nanotechnology atomically precise manufacturing does that background in engineering shape how you have looked at super intelligence uh, uh, very much so uh, I was a while ago looking at areas that I've that I've worked in over the years, and they started with uh, study of the potential for building systems in space that use space resources to build, among other things, more space systems that can be used to use space resources. Uh, well, that is a systems level problem. It's about diverse technologies. It's about functionality used to develop better functionality of the same kind. Right. Uh, in nanotechnology, I uh, began looking by looking at uh, molecular machine systems in biology, which include programmable systems, ribosomes, which take digital information and use that digital information to manufacture little functional devices, uh, proteins, which among other things can make the machinery that's used to do uh, these, the, these uh, operations. And asked the question, uh, how could those tech, could we learn to design those kinds of things? The answer seemed to be yes, and I persuaded people, and that kicked off the field of protein engineering, mm. if you look at the, the citation tree. And again, it was a question of how can one build systems that can be used in aggregate to build better systems of the same general kind? Right, and right. following that forward led to a picture of some quite, quite powerful uh, systems, uh, desktop factories that have enormous number of simple components working in parallel to make small blocks that are put right. together to make larger components and so right. on. And then in the AI area, again, it's a question of uh, what do the production processes look like? Yep. How can aggregates of functional systems together uh, build uh, better components uh, and further systems of the same general kind? Right. So that's a theme. It's a systems engineering theme, and it's at a very macro level. Uh, sort of whole whole sectors of, of technology. Right. And the recursive element is also present with AutoML and automating the yes. R&D production process. Yes, and we're seeing that grow very rapidly. Uh, it has grown a lot in the late part of my working on the document, and if I had the, were rewriting the report, it would say a lot more about what is now called AutoML. Great. And I, I think the last kind of theme I want to touch on is a lot of this work is about making, as you were saying, making sure we're operating on the same framework, or at least al outlining alternative frameworks so that we can kind of cut the world in different slices. I think I, I, I really like these types of questions. A lot of my research questions are just like 
define this term? How do we define what are strategic technologies, for example? Or how do you define what techno-nationalism is? And how do you actually measure these things? And what does that do? Um, how do these semantic, seemingly semantic distinctions actually influence our perceptions of the world? Um, but oftentimes I get stuck at the definition stage, so I outline an alternative framework, um, and then the question is, what's next? So you have this framework now. Um, what is next? Are you going to play around more with this framework? Are you going to think about different frameworks? Uh, what, how are you going to build off this KAIST model? Well, much of what the, the KAIST model says is that to a first approximation, AI systems are about uh, performing tasks that people want to accomplish in the world. And that raises the question, what can we do and what should we want to do if we have high-level AI systems that are, broadly speaking, doing what we want with all the caveats and problems that can come out of it. What can lead to good outcomes? What are good orientations for differential technology development and for framing future challenges and goals? So you, you mentioned uh, defining concepts. Mm. I'm currently working on another collection of sections that will turn into some rather large report document at some point. And the central concept there is what I'm calling uh, general implementation capacity. Hmm. The overlapping process of uh, design and planning, uh, development, deployment, application, and adaptation. And if you imagine accelerating any one of those, well, all the others are slow and doesn't make an enormous difference in outcomes. But if you accelerate design and planning and development and deployment and right. application and adaptation, right then that picture says that we can collapse the delays between formulating goals and deploying complex new systems at scale and also be able to accomplish it, accomplish this on a much with much broader scope. And at that point, one can ask again, what should we want? And I think that people things that people will want uh, include uh, abundant goods and services, you know, greater, greater material wealth, uh, uh, superior health, uh, security and addressing environmental problems, rolling back environmental impact, hmm. uh, fixing climate change. Yep. And all of these are within the scope of what can be accomplished by applying advanced AI services to engineering tasks, among others. And because these benefits can be effectively universal, again, right. that's a, what falls out of the analysis of, of what's available and what can be done. Right. There's the, the potential for powerful actors at some point to see that it's no longer business as usual, to be looking forward to a turbulent transition, being very concerned about the risks. You don't want to fight a war with technologies that are untested. Uh, you don't want economic turbulence to overwhelm your society. Right. Cooperative or aligned measures are the way to reduce those risks. And if the advantages on the other side are effectively non-rivalrous, uh, tremendously better situation by many different metrics, that's a potential basis for strong global goal alignment mm. among self-interested powerful actors who are just reconsidering their options, finding new options, recognizing that their interests are different because their options are different. Right. And perhaps if we can align thinking among advisors to powerful actors well enough, perhaps at that later date, uh, when the situation is clearly changing, making some decisions that are coherent and make sense. Wow, that's a, that's a nice, hopeful, optimistic note to end it on. Thanks for uh, being here.
Thank you. We still don't have an outro, so sorry about that.